Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration services their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and I'm on with my friend Megan Jarvis. She is an LCSW or LICSW, um, and she does a lot of work with grief and counseling and therapy and trauma and all of the stuff that uh, that we do here. And so um, we did the TED Talk together. You sure did. I mean, just a few months ago. It seems like a year and a half ago now, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and you did another one right after it and exhausted yourself I completely. I I'm a maniac. Yep. Yep. Um, and so we were talking a while before, but let's get started. I, I love um, all the things that you talk about from a trauma-responsive kind of trauma-informed way about grief and just life. And I loved your talk. So um, tell us kind of who you are, where you live, what you do. All those things. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this all day. And, you know, weeks ago when we first crossed paths, I was like, oh, well, he and I are going to, we're going to do some things together. That's so right. That is so lovely. So, yeah. So I'm talking to you from my little podcast studio, which is like a Harry Potter room under my stairs nice. in my house, just outside of Washington, D.C., where I have lived for uh 20 i came down here in 1996 intending on leaving i was just coming down like all the young folks do and you know i worked at a think tank for a while had my heart broken went to therapy and that was a big pivot and tacking point in my life um because up until then i had that kind of feeling that lots of people have where you're just like a little bit other a little bit not like all the other folks you don't really know why it's probably something bad about you mm. and when i went to therapy which i thought was ostensibly for a breakup which it was i mean i my heart was broken um what i learned in there was that actually i had a, all the hallmarks in terms of my personality and how i felt that children who have experienced trauma that goes unresolved mm. end up growing into adults that are like me. Yeah. And, and me. it was just, yeah. And right. So, and, and it was a little bit um, terrifying, a little bit 
like really deeply sad and super exciting to be able to thread back to there was a there was a teenager in my childhood who drowned on a beach while my family and I were there, but we didn't know that that happened until many, many hours later. And his family was connected to our family in this teeny tiny town. And so we had a funeral and then we never talked about it again for the rest of our lives. And when I sat with a therapist and she asked me what seemed like weird questions, like, well, who did you then assume was going to die next in your life? Like, <laughs> No one had ever, and I was like, oh, well, I'm my older brother. And she said, oh, and how did you behave on account of that? And it was like, oh, well, my older brother was in boarding school. I made him, you know, I walked from my little farmhouse down to a grocery store that was six miles away, got all the ingredients for um, cookies and sent him cookies every week. Like, oh, well, that's not normal 11-year-old behavior, right? but it was normal to me. And so having someone sort of crack open, like, not really it's anybody's fault you know it was the the early 80s and when this death happened and really the ethos then was like protect children from bad things don't talk to them about stuff and so i don't have a lot of like oh the parents failed me i more have wow i just that all just absorbed into my system and it never left Mm -hmm. so i really fell in love with therapy for what it offered me which was like a world that looked like the one i could see but couldn't get inside i like that right and then it and then it required a lot of me a lot of risk taking Mm. and you know you know children of trauma like to be really nice and safe even if nice and safe is inside the trauma like we don't want to risk breaking through because it's probably worse over there and you know i i tell the story a lot it's in my memoir um i started dating my husband you know in the course of going through this breakup and learning all these things about me my therapist was like i think you should be dating a million people like go on lots of dates i had a lot of codependency and for your audience that really just means like i didn't ever really want to know how i felt about something or what i cared about i just keeping other people happy seemed like a good way to go and my therapist was like no you need to go figure out who do you like who do you like sitting next to who do you enjoy and I met my husband at a concert. I picked him up at a at a club here in D.C. And mostly because he seemed really nice and kind. And every week I would go in and say to my therapist, like, well, he did something terrible. And so we have to stop dating, obviously. <laughs> I'm out. And she, she, God, the wise woman, she would say, absolutely, definitely, 100% break up with him for exactly the reasons you have just discussed. And since you're breaking up with him anyway, you could just tell him what you told me. And just, you know, let him know just for the practice of communication and like being the Megan who wants to be honest and authentic and in her feelings. And then I'd come back the next week and she'd say, how did you, how is it? How did the breakup go? And I'm like, well, you know, the damnedest thing happened. <laughs> I told him how I felt. He seemed very surprised. He was not shaming that I had all these crazy thoughts and feelings. And then we went to the movies. And so I, I often say it was a bit like the Princess Bride, like the good night, Wesley, good work, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And that, and then lo and behold, my husband and I were together for a really long time where we were just sort of navigating my attachment stuff. Mm. And, um, and it was really nice and peaceful in our early 20s. We got married, stayed here, raised kids, and I opened my own private practice. And my clinical work as a social worker was pretty general. 
my intensive therapy work was a lot of how I learned what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted to do. And I think that's probably true for all therapists. Like, hey, people out there do not trust therapists who haven't gone to therapy. Amen. And then I trained in all the the brutal stuff that really I had this experience where I didn't know better. And I had a client come in and say that they had they were just beginning to remember a really terrible experience. And so my response was like, oh, tell me about it. And I didn't understand that when you do that, you are re-traumatizing and dysregulating a client. Mm. My client got pretty unwell just through the process of telling me about it. And I was like, oh, that is not what I meant to do. How do I learn how to not do this again? Mm -hmm. And so I started um, training in sensory motor psychotherapy, which is a very long you know, sort of arduous, you have to do what is being asked of the clients type of therapy. I did trained in EMDR, I trained in IFS. You know, I just took advice from people I respected and then ended up with a tool belt that allowed me to work with people who have really significant trauma that's still inside their bodies that they're trying to figure out ways to get out. And my belief about trauma is there's loss and grief that is you know, stitched in. So it may be that you live through a hurricane and now, you know, anytime it's windy, you start to have a panic attack. But when you only sort of treat that as symptoms instead of the loss of control and the loss of the understanding of what the world looks like, a lot of my childhood trauma was just being a child who was nine, who understood that adults didn't keep you safe. Yep. And it made me such an angry child. People are like, oh, my dad could beat up your dad. I'm like, well, who cares what your dad could do? Like kids die and your dad can't do anything about it. Right. So a lot of what the work that people came in, you know, your pra- my practice sort of met the clients and, and people who had done work with me told other people. And it really became very, quite complicated cases. But really at the root, what we were going to talk about was how to move through the grief that maybe had set up camp inside the house of the body. So we'll move the trauma through, but also that that part that is about really acknowledging the loss of whatever this is. That's good. That's inside your system. Yeah. I had a client and uh, we, we would every, you know, almost every session or every other session, I'd be like, Oh, there's loss again. And she'd get so mad at me. She's like, are you going to say loss again? Like it would be another issue about some other symptom. And, I'd be like, make that therapist face. She's like, are you going to say loss again? I'm like, yes. Like, and, sure and it goes back to your mother and, you know, like, and it's, that's the, I love this last couple of years I've, I've done. Um, I did some equine therapy like four years ago oh, love for it. myself and, and very much like you, like for anybody listening, like therapists that are out here, you know, we, that are good. We do our own work. Like you said, we go to therapy because we're all a mess. Many people have trauma that are therapists. It is what gets us into it. Um, now I've heard people say things like, well, yeah, people become therapists or psychologists because they, you know, they want to help people because you know, they had problems themselves. Like, yeah, that's true. And that gets really toxic if you don't do your own work. You know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine how you would stay regulated if it makes you a better therapist. Like, you know, when, when my therapist looks at his watch or yawns or is late or, you know, or I have to divulge something from the week that I really just don't want to talk about. It's so helpful because it keeps you in this humble place of, 
uh, I know what it's like. And so then you have more empathy for your client and the little tiny nuances of what therapy are and that safety seeking behavior and, you know, the avoidance and the minimizing and all the things that we do in therapy as, as therapists going 100%. to therapy, you know, you don't get annoyed with clients for doing it. You just see it as a part of the process. I get it. So it's like, no, I get it, man. I get that. You know, that, you know, you'll look at the clock and somebody will be like, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, you know, they'll move around. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I know. I need to wrap this up. And I'm like, man, I just had to check the time. Yeah. You know, like, but I get, <laughs> I, I get that you felt like you were too much in that moment. Absolutely. What was interesting for me and what brought me to a TED stage is so I had had death in my life, right? It's the most, you know, all roads lead to Rome in terms of the young adult that I became. So much of it was just unresolved grief and loss over this teenager's death inside my family, inside my system. And I had to learn to live differently. And I really felt like I nailed that. I spent a million and six dollars in therapy, group therapy, you know, everything trained as a therapist. And I had other people who died, other relatives who died, some suddenly, some expected. And I was like, I got this, I'm navigating this. In 2017, my dad was died. Well, in 2016, he was diagnosed with small cell cancer, which is a death sentence. He died a year later. Mm. I really participated in his death. I spent a lot of time with him. Our relationship was probably better in his years in his year dying than it was before. And I was like, I've got it. I know what I'm doing. I've been coaching people. I understand. And then in 2019, my mom died suddenly when I was on vacation with her. Oh. And pretty much instantly, I mean, the the one of the very first thoughts I had was, it's your fault she died. Mm. And that became a rumination. And I had this metacognition. So I, I'm like stepped away from myself as a clinician. I'm like, oh, I know what's going on here. That is the beginning of PTSD. Right. Like I know where we're headed. I knew where we were headed. And, and I, over the course of, you know, I did what you have to do, help with the funeral and all that stuff. I have brothers and sisters. So we, we really sort of shared that burden. But all night long, whisper in my ear, like you should have done something differently. And... I, I spent some time praying over her body as she was in the tradition of her religion. And so I had images that mm. were that went from like, oh, flashing two or three times a day to like absolutely, utterly relentless. I couldn't even walk across my floor. So ultimately, I ended up calling a colleague because I didn't think I could do it myself. And she called the treatment center in Tennessee that I send my clients whose symptoms get worse because that sometimes happens when you start your trauma work is that the symptoms come out kind of like a haunted house. Mm -hmm. And she got me checked in to the same facility. I've sent dozens of my clients. And so I had this, you know, I mean, I write about a lot about it in the memoir. Like I was like sitting in the chair answering the questions and being like, oh, this is what... Oh. those 12 clients did last year. I had equine therapy at this treatment facility. I have to tell you my whole life. I'm like, whatever. I grew up riding horses, horses. People love horses. People also love goats. Goats yeah. are actually kind of assholes as animals. They're not <laughs> fun and cute the way people think they are. I don't know why anyone would think doing yoga, but same with horses. Horses are temperamental and annoying. Horses that have been rescued are also injured. And I went to equine therapy and was like, I will do this because it is required. But I am positive that this is not going to have any impact on me. And my equine therapy session, which was a lot of bilateral stimulation, so a lot of sort of like, yep. you know, wax on, wax off, 
which I know the neuroscience you behind. Like brushing and it, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, picked the horse and all of that. And, um, and it was, I had a thought pop in my head, which was, it's going to be okay. And it was the first time in three months that I even had an inkling that I wasn't going to completely collapse and die. And I mean, when I got to the treatment facility, I couldn't even say more than my mom died. And to say my mother died took like a minute for me to get the words out. Mm. So I have, a, and that feels emotional even when I say it, I have a much more embodied understanding of what I was clinically very knowledgeable about. And when I came out the other side, so I have peer supervisors who, you know, people I've collected over the years who are incredible clinicians, their names are Mary Beth and Stacy. And I asked their advice, like how much, I don't even know which way is North. How much time do I take off? What do I tell my clients? And they were like, we have your clients, give them our contact information. We will take care of your practice, which is a kind of a gift that is hard to even, you understand it as a clinician. You know, the idea that you can't take care of your people, but someone else is just going to do it is pretty remarkable. But they said six months and I was like, you're crazy. I can't take six months off. But I did take six months off. And when I came out the other side of treatment, I was still not, you know, my feet were not still, were not yet on the earth. I just wasn't ringing like a bell with these PTSD symptoms in the same way. So I started writing instead of doing talk therapy and my typical talk therapy and even body centered work that I had done just, I wasn't like available for Mm -hmm. it. So I started journal writing. I started doing some, um, like writing on a blog and it really was just, this is my experience with this. And what happened with some of that writing was people responded, just as you and I said, as clinicians, we get a lot of direct messages. I mean, I have staff that just manages my messages Um, because grief still is seen as pretty private and people, when they want to tell you their story, it makes me think of when mothers have babies. One of the things that's really important is to say, like, when did you go into labor and then not say another sentence until they're done telling you all the scary and the hard because it's trauma to give birth to a baby. Yep. The the messages that I get from people are like, thank you for saying what you said. I had a similar experience or my experience was completely different than yours, but there's something about my writing that people can read that gives them a point to react to. And, and it's an invitation for them to start to talk And, you know, we construct our realities with our words and we make ourselves less alone in being able to really use the right language for me to say, this is what it was. This is what it felt like. This is how I feel. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, when I went back to my therapist chair, one of my really fantastic colleagues said, what do you need to get back in the chair? What's it going to take? And I was like, I I have to tell my clients the truth. Like they knew that I was taking time off, but I didn't tell them I was going to a treatment facility. And I was raised and trained in the world of like, you're not in the room, the, you know, all of it's for your client. Don't even tell them you have a dog because they might have counter, you know, they might have transferred. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. And even if that's right, I can't do that. So wow. let's see what happens. Yeah, dude, that's so good, Megan, because um, we have that talk all the time. And obviously, I'm going to say this, 
uh, it's a no crap line, but like, obviously you don't overburden your clients. Obviously you don't overshare, you don't cross boundaries. But I think, um, similar, similarly, similarly, um, about four years ago, 2019, I kind of hit a wall as well. And that's what I started the equine there. I was seeing way too many trauma clients and way too many like sexual traumas came up out of the middle of nowhere, which is what prompted my Ted talk. I mean, I'd always kind of talked about sexual trauma and neglect and abuse and and pornography and exposure and all those things. Um, but only to a few people, you know, and and clinically I'd look for it and talk about it, but I never really, I just kept seeing it in everybody. And I'm like, am I just projecting? Like, is this counter transference? Am I just looking for this or is it really everywhere? And, uh, and it just became sensory overloaded where I realized like, oh, I'd done some EMDR, I'd done some therapy around it, but man, I just never had dealt with some of these deeper things, the yeah. body work part, right? Yeah. Where it was still stored in my body. It was always, I was good at talking about it and intellectualizing yeah. it and doing the therapy yeah. thing. Yeah. And so I went to equine therapy and it was the same thing. I was like, this is literally horse crap. Bullshit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like standing in this arena with this 1200 pound animal and the therapist is like, you know, ask the horse to connect with you. And I'm like looking at her, like, what are you talking about? Um, and I, I'm like, you're just feeling like a complete idiot. And yet it was such a spark to, and I did it for 40 hours probably for like six months. And, uh, I mean, just dealing with attachment and sensory and body work and feeling my feelings and all those things, it changed the yeah. way that I see clinical work. So anyway, same thing. I came back yeah sitting in the chair thinking about like now everything is where do you feel that in your body and where's your attachment and where's your attunement and you need to go see this person who can do body work with you and you know and that feeds into the addiction and sex addiction and so yeah it's like all of it's back to grief and loss but all of it is 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 body work and and sensorial and 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 so when you were talking i was also thinking just to segue real quick i think the other thing that people forget as clinicians is, and as consumers, if you're looking for a therapist is to get somebody trained in trauma and those things, because it's still very few and far between it's better. When I moved back to Louisiana from Fuller, there was really no one talking about EMDR or trauma in Louisiana. I mean, there were a few and they were good therapists, but in general, nobody even knew what like systems theory was, you know, much, much less, you know, some right. of these things and, and by nobody, I mean the large majority. Yeah. And, and so when, when we started, you know, you start doing that work and trauma and it, it just changes the landscape of everything. And I think what we need to realize is, you know, that was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. Um, and now, and this is the question to you that I'd like for you to talk about. I feel like what what people aren't catching up with is how different human beings are today than they were just 12 years ago. And what I, what I mean by that is people are like, well, I'm just going to get easy cases or I don't really want to work with trauma or I don't really want to work with addiction. So I'll just take like anxiety or depression or whatever. And I'm like, there are no easy cases. So what do you think about that? Well, you know, so first of all, I appreciate you sharing your part of the story too, because I think, again, we're kind of changing the culture around what to expect in therapy when we have these open conversations. And I feel like the risk that I took to go in and tell clients, this is what's really going on, 
just gave me street cred for them. I mean, most 100%. of them, I'm like, yeah, no, I, I like walk that. And I can't guarantee to you that I don't overshare or overburden. Same. What I do is try to co-create safety in the room. So I try to be really attuned and I really try to advocate with my clients that when I do that, it's an opportunity for them to practice, to tell me, Megan, I don't want to, I have a client that's like, do not talk to me about your shit today. I have stuff I, I need to talk about. So <laughs> I'm, you know, but she also comes from a system where people don't let her talk. So she's dress rehearsing what she needs to be doing outside in her life. Yes. So that's I actually so good. think everybody gets to be human in the room and that we're going to co-create a space of healing. And that's the part about being a clinician. You know, I think I was a great therapist before I was trauma trained. I just maybe wasn't able to offer some people a deeper level of work, but my hope is, you know, that they were able to move on to that kind of work with someone else because they felt well cared for and attuned. And, and that's been my experience in therapy, that that wonderful first therapist that I worked with, there were aspects of trauma that she was not looking at or wondering about. You know, I've studied a lot about nutrition and about, you know, feeding your body in a healthy way. She, she had like gummy bears on a table, you know, and she was like, just, you know, the sugar can soothe. I'm like, oh, that, that wasn't right. But it may have been. You know, it may have allowed me to feel more childlike in the room. So I really, yeah. I, I had a, the the gentleman who trained me in EMDR said, this work is like shamanistic. You got to feel your way forward. I'm going to teach you the, the concepts and you're either going to be able to do this by channeling this energy or not. And if mm -hmm. you can't, it's okay move on and use other tools. That's good. And I really appreciated that because I could feel it. It was like cross country skiing. Like I could feel when I was mm, in the thing and I was like, Oh, this is it. And I use IFS that way. Like I can feel, I get, a, I, I write about this a lot in the book. I talk a lot about it. I've always been very somatic. I get cold. It's happened a number of times while we've been talking. And I know that when I'm feeling cold, it's because I'm telling the truth of the truth. Mm -hmm. In IFS therapy, which for your clients, it's just really it's it's different parts of you that you employ at different times to protect yourself. What's and IFS stand for for people? Internal family systems, there and it comes from Dick Schwartz. And you know, it's a beautiful format for therapy because you can use it in a really lightweight, simple way of just like meditating in the morning, and you can unburden some of the deepest trauma. Mm. And what would happen for me is that I would feel really electrified and cold. And then I was like, oh, we're about to unburden something. And in that moment, what I felt like was just my presence, my my interest in helping co-create healing with this person is going to be enough. I don't need to have the right words. I don't need to know all the things. I am right here in this cold, true energy. And I'm offering them that opportunity, but they got to step to it. Yep. So I'm not saying that to give clinicians a pass. But when my dad died, I was really having a hard time listening to people's, you know, sad stories. And, but I was, but I could show up. To How work. dare you? I know. And, you know, my clinical supervisor at the time said, there is so much healing in just you validating, just being attuned and 
So I would validate. And for your listeners, validating just is like, that makes sense to me. Sometimes I would just mirror. They would be like, well, I was really upset at my wife. And I would say, you were really upset at your wife. And that can be a therapeutic hold, right? The trauma work really is the promise of being the midwife between a stuck energy and a flow. And I would never stop doing trauma work because it is the holiest experience I have ever had, including birthing my children, Mm. to sit with people who are in terror and they move through and survive to the other side. Mm. And I know it because I crawled through those those holes myself, so I can be a guide to that. But it is so energetically expensive. It is so energetically expensive that to show up as a mom to three kids to a life and the trauma work really does, you know, we call ourselves trauma-informed therapists. I let people call me a trauma therapist because it's like simpler, but I'm not working on the trauma. You know, I'm using the information about trauma to work with the client. Yeah, they're and really doing the work. They're doing the work, right? I'm just really offering them, you know, a safe a safe witness and a container so that they can take this wild risk to sort of hope for a different life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, the 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 holy witnessing that I have been allowed to be a part of is, you know, when people are like, oh, my job, I'm like, your job, like, why do you photocopy your problems? Like my, what I get to do every day is so extraordinary. But when I went through my experience of loss and came out the other side, I was like, wow, we really tell some lies to people about grief. And we allow there to be real, like solid misinformation, and it goes unchallenged in ways that is really detrimental. And the culture of silence and sort of quiet, and I know you feel this way, you know, about sexual trauma is so damaging in the isolation to people. People feel so alone. And you know what? You are alone. You're alone when you are grieving and you are alone when you are a victim. You are alone it happened to you and you distinctly, but that doesn't mean that you are not, you know, energetically connected to all of the people who care about that experience and can offer you resources. So I came out the other side of like, Hey, I've always talked about grief and loss. It's always sort of been the specialty and the thing that I'm focused on, but I actually feel like I have this expertise now, this way of talking about it that needs to be louder and bigger. And that's what landed me on the TED stage was, listen, I have all these credentials. I've done all this training, but also I'm a daughter who lost her parents and I got really sick. Yep. You know, and I'm, and I'm very clear when people are like, oh, well, you had a hard time. I'm like, no, I had PTSD. I was really sick. Mm-hmm. I got sick. And I help people thread that back, right, to the childhood trauma. So it was a second ago, you said it's really important for people to be trauma informed. In grief and loss, because it's not actually like a mental health problem, it's actually more just a life stage issue. The second TED Talk that I gave sort of equates it more to puberty. Like it's a stage of life that everyone's going to go through. You need support and you need education. I think it's fine to talk to your pastor, maybe even a good friend, certainly a grief coach. They're not going to have all the training that I have. When it's not fine is when your symptoms are getting worse. They are headed to tr- towards trauma, which again, we don't tell people what that is. So everybody's like, well, she's still crying a year after her husband died. She probably needs to, 
that's just grief, my friend. But if she's not leaving the house a year after her husband died, her husband died and her life has become less small and, and worse, that looks and smells like trauma. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go see a trauma therapist. You have to. Because the work that you and I do is actually informed by data and science and experience. And I use the example of the rape survivor that I spoke with. I made her way worse. I mean, she she was made ill by my inexperience and inability to care for her. Mm-hmm. And when I was trained, I was like, oh, I, I will I would never do that again. Mm-hmm. And I was a good therapist. Yep. I think that we were talking about this this morning, actually, in a group of three or four of us were meeting and talking and and just talking about like the line. And this is not a, oh my gosh, you know, my least favorite thing is, is a total side note. My least favorite thing is, I forgot that we were doing a podcast, by the way. Um, (laughs) My least, (laughs) literally just realized we were doing it uh, because I'm just enjoying talking to you. Uh, uh, I was about to go on a bigger tangent, but I'll filter it. Um, Although my listeners are like, please give me the unfiltered. it's when people post about their jobs being hard on social media and then they list like, you know, whatever it is. Um, and therapists too. And I love you. If you're out there, I'm not judging yeah. you. I don't think your worth and values less than, I just yeah. think it speaks to how burnout you might be. Yeah. But, right. um, but not on social media, listing all the reasons why they're being a therapist is hard and, and with the risk of sounding like I'm complaining about it. I think one of the things that is difficult as a clinician and why people don't want to do it or be a pastor or a missionary or, you know, whatever the thing is, uh, you know, a shaman or whatever the thing is, is because you have to be human and do it. And so That's you right. can't do it perfectly. That's right. Like, I, you know, I look back on last year sessions and the year before that and the year before that, I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't know what I'd know now. And so I want to do better That's then. Right. And maybe I shared too much or maybe I didn't share enough or maybe I wasn't vulnerable enough in this moment when it really needed it because I was, you know, whatever. But it's it's just crazy that expectation of the clinical world, the licensure of like, do not be human in the room. You know, this is for them. Yeah. You can't be there and serve them. And then the same people go, but what works right. in therapy is right. only about 7% of it is the tool you use. And 93% right. of it is you. That's and it's right. like, what? Like, so I'm supposed to be human and imperfectly human. And we're supposed to be in this, you know, again, the more you learn about attachment and attunement and all those things, the more you realize like, Oh, it's better to be a real person in the room because authenticity breeds safety. When you can, it doesn't, you don't need perfection. Yes. You need a person who you can trust, you know, who, who is gonna, who you go, okay, they're going to overshare a little bit or they're going to be a little loud or they're going to swear, but I know where they stand and they're going to do that every real week. Person. And I can, right. I can learn to go, you're a real person. And now I need to work out my stuff with you so I can take it outside of this room and go be a healthy human. And I feel like so many people go to therapy and come to the office here, at least with our therapists and go, you're the first person ever to mention trauma. You're the first person ever to, you know, tell me you have a cat, you know, whatever. Um, the other person just nodded and said, you know, great. You know, we'll see you next week and hope, you know, it's like, ugh. and again, not that that's not therapeutic. I'm not hating on that. I'm just saying once you break through the veil, it's hard to go back. What it's making me think about is the conversation that, that is out there in the ethos about empathy. 
Mm-hmm. So right now I'm doing less clinical work and I'm doing more sort of in-service conversation and consulting to companies that are really struggling to get their employees back in the office. And they're like, we're trying to incentivize After a loss? Them. Or after COVID. Okay. You know, they're trying to, they're trying, work really shifted, yep. right? And so people were home and and the people think that being home is better, but really being home is just like maybe more in their control. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of trying to help companies with things like polyvagal theory, which is like, look, our actual first defense when we're in trouble is social. So, you know, we look for the helpers, like Mr. Rogers said. So encourage particularly your employees who are in their 20s if they won't come back into the office get them back doing something together Mm -hmm. because they've been away for a long enough period of time as many of us do we get into a into a trajectory and we think this is the right way and we don't want to change like actually we're wired to not want to change right like we conserve energy in this way but but what the conversations with like the higher ups always come back to like, well, I know I'm supposed to be empathetic. We know we need to have empathy in the workplace. And then there's the like, but how do we do, how do we be empathetic without becoming a mental health facility? Like how will we get any work done if we start talking about feelings? And I love that question because it really, you know, trauma survivors are really black and white. So it's like, I can't do it at all or I have to do it all the time. And I think the problem actually is not is that we have not defined empathy properly. Mm. So I can't wait for this I conversation. To, right. So 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 empathy really is I am going to the well of my personal experience. And I yeah, am it's not sympathy up that energy so that you can hook your experience to mine. And maybe you don't have to say every word because I get it. Because my thing that is as similar as I can get to your thing is out and up. I'm not talking about it, but I went down and got it. And now it's here. So we talk about that, like empathy is the golden ray of sunshine that's going to save everybody's souls. But keep in mind that my empathy comes from a trauma story. Yep. My empathy comes from my childhood trauma I can't just go down and pull up a big letter E without it being stuck with the seaweed of all of the ways that I lived in pain from that story. Mm, that's good. So when people are talking about, oh, well, we need more empathy in the workplace, they really are actually possibly advocating dysregulated emotional unboundaried experience. Where, so so that so if we think about it energetically, my sympathy is just me and my head thinking about how you must feel and saying, I am so sorry for you, Clint. That's terrible. Empathy is going down into the deep well of my personal experience, trying to match it to what I think you're and bringing mine up. And so now I've got I'm in my feelings and you're in your feelings. And as a therapist, that's probably going to be a healing space for you. But then you leave. And now I've got my childhood E and all my seaweed. And what? where do I put that? What are my tools, right? Everybody always talks, but they lie about this. Well, as therapists, we're trained. Oh, my to, gosh. Know, we're not trained at all for that. Anytime I'm on a panel and somebody says that, I'm like, so where, what, what was that training? Yeah, sign me up. Because <laughs> yeah. I didn't take that training. No one's ever offered me that training. I've had, I paid a million dollars for my own personal therapy, but 
what the hell training are you talking about? Preach. Social work school, I learned about like the history of social workers. I never was trained in how to have boundaries. Now, the Don't word that, that I think is, right, right? The word that I think is more important is compassion because compassion is boundaried empathy. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go all the way down into my experience. I actually know that inside my body, I hold this experience. And so with both my thinking mind and my embodied experience, which stays regulated with my boundaries, I say to you, I really get what you're talking about. And I send you that compassion, which is a big IFS tool. I send it to you and I say, can you feel it? Can you feel that I get it? Or does it feel like I don't get it? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to say back to me, like, no, I really feel you get it. Because if I'm deeply attuned to you, you should feel it. I shouldn't it's have real. to talk yep. about my own story. You should feel And if you don't feel it, I say, why not? And you might say, well, I'm, af- I'm afraid of being seen. Like, okay, well, can the fear step back so that we can just see what it would feel like to be seen? Mm-hmm. You yeah, think I can get it? And so oddly, that is what I'm teaching companies. That's what great. I'm teaching companies is what we need to put some boundaries and some of those boundaries are really concrete. Like tell your HR person that their meetings have to only be 45 minutes long, regardless of what somebody's the content of what somebody's bringing. You, you can't have your HR person having a five hour session with somebody who's being stalked by an employee. Is that really serious? Yeah. But your HR per- person will come to work the next day. If they're in there for five hours, I got to write something down. You said, give you on. So part of what we're trying to do is give the layperson better language, like actual matching language with what it is that we think would be better in workplaces. There are always going to be people that need to also on their lunch hour, come see you or me and get therapy. Absolutely. But when I'm asking workplaces to be grief informed, and to have compassion for the experience of the past three years, I am not asking them to become mental health practitioners. It's such a great, I mean, it's such a great point. I mean, that, that is the big fear right now. Right now we're, uh, it is their fear. hundred percent. Everybody says that about everything. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't, I'm not a counselor, you know, parents do that a lot. Like, well, I'm not like you. I don't, you know, and I'm sure you hear this all the time as if we have some special magic right. tool that allows right. us to do it. It's, right. it's, um, it's that we did the work. We know what it we know what it feels like when somebody is or isn't attuned. We know what it feels like when somebody is hearing you and is being compassionate and is having empathy and they're not. And uh, but the point you're making, sorry, there's so many things that I'm loving about this, so I'm going to try to keep on track. Um is that people don't have to go deep down into their own personal things, yeah. bring all of that up, wear themselves out. And that's, so people call it compassion fatigue, right? You know, and yeah. I've, I've done a lot of work with churches and with businesses and, and nonprofits. Really empathy. It's yeah. really empathy. Fatigue. It's really that they haven't won. And, and I'm, I guess I'm saying this and, and you're just giving me better language or clearer language around it for sure. But cause I've been saying the same thing, like you're, you're giving too much, your boundaries, of what you're supposed to be doing and what you're stepping into is too much, which is why you're exhausted. You're not required to give all of yourself. You're not required to take it home every day. You have no tools or resources and and that's the symptom. And deeper than that, you have no insight into what is bringing up in you. You know what, you know, you said to bring up the E with the, the seaweed on it, like years of therapy. I'm, I learn new things every day, but like I'm pretty clear on what the bulk of the seaweed is hanging off my E 
where I think yeah. other people bring their E up and they're just like, Oh, it's just a clean E, you know, it's like, here's my E. And it's like, they don't even, they don't even know all the things that are weighing them down. And that's, what's getting people. So is that so accurate? This, is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. There's this extraordinary book, which is called how feelings are made, which is by a woman whose name is Linda Feldman Barrett. And she sort of builds off the work of Mark Brackett, who's at the center for emotional studies at Yale. And this book, it's hard, like, don't go read it, but it's a clinical book. But part of what she reminds me, and I think about it every day, is that the story that I am telling myself today is predicting my experience in the future. Mm -hmm. Because the brain is an experiential memory tool that is used for prediction. So what trauma therapists sometimes do is we only talk about the bad things that happened in this past and we unburden those things, but we forget to lay the brickwork. So I always think of trauma as a circular track mm -hmm. and we're gonna be on it until we clean up the whole track. And when the track is as clean as we can, we will notice that there is a gate and we can get off it if we want to. That particular transformation time is usually really, really, really hard. Stepping off your trauma track and, and walking somewhere else is usually terrifying for people. And it's really dysregulating and they, you know, they have a lot of trauma response, which might look like they hate everybody and they want to quit their job and they want to cut bangs and all that stuff. Yeah. If we don't offer them the, hey, let's lay some bricks over here and start moving forward. If we don't offer that, then all we've really done is given them a trauma track to be on that's tidy and mm -hmm. clean. That's good. I like we that. We need, right? And in grief, what, what grievers will tell you is there's a before and an after. They can't go back. They can't even go back in their minds to that moment. They wish they could. They would do anything to go back to, you know, 201. So they're building this, this way forward as part of their trauma. Yeah. They don't get to clean the track. They're putting the, the bricks down and hoping this pathway doesn't take them into the deep dark woods where they're going to be eaten by a bear. Why it is really important to distinguish between compassion and empathy is that if you are working with a client and watching them build that pathway in all of that dysregulation dysregulates you, you're going to screw up their path. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you're going to create a circle. You're going to send them back to their circle. And when we're talking about it in the wide world, what we say to grievers is actually nobody can tell you anything. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is you're in the spaceship by yourself. You are as alone as you think you are, but you just can't go back to your old track. You can move forward. You actually can move forward. And that is compassion. Empathy would be, I'm pulling up and saying, I know when I had to do this, this is what I found really hard. Mm -hmm. Compassion is I had to do that. I know it's really hard. And I also, you're going to do it. Yep. Believe that you can do it. That's good. I, uh, I love, uh, helping people see that especially with trauma which is lots of people that part of the trauma and i would say it may be pushed back on this or not but part of in my opinion you know grief is a normal part of life but it's also so counter to 
what we're supposed to experience. And, and I mean, from, from me, from a Christian perspective, you know, it's kind of the, the Eden live forever. You know, that was the intent was for us to, to not have to suffer and, and all these things, even though now it's part of life. And so things happen where, whether we're, we experience death early, we experience injury early, we experience violence or, you know, safety violations or, um, an illness or whatever the label of trauma is, right? The thing that happened to you that, that changed the way that, so you were victimized at some point. And what I've seen is that for most of us, we grow up as children, not realizing that we're victims because our parents didn't know they didn't have the language of it. We we live in a society where they didn't have any clue to even say, Hey, you know, this shouldn't happen or this is what you should feel about yourself. And we grow up with this narrative Right on this track, you know, this narrative that says something's wrong with me, I'm bad, I deserved this, whatever. When in reality, that's not the truth. You you sh- didn't Just deserve like, it. It shouldn't have happened. Li- either life happened or someone did something really wrong. And so you you grow up as a victim. And then as a victim, when you don't acknowledge your victimhood, your inner child, that inner, that and that body, that, that body work you need to do, when you don't let them have a voice, then they, they learn to cope and come up and have a voice in all kinds of ways that are appropriate and inappropriate. And so what I find is that there's this space, this that holy space that you were talking about, the sacred space where you acknowledge their victimhood, you attune to them, and, and in, the, in the most therapeutic way, they don't feel alone anymore, and they feel seen, and That's that right. inner child feels heard and held and loved. And, and then there's... There's a time, and it's different for every client, where you have to stop sitting in that with them, and they have to move into out of victimhood and into empowerment. And I think that's the same thing you're saying with getting off the track, is you start to you have to start to encourage them and and use the bridge you built between you and the trust you have and the equity and all the safety to say, does that sound like your inner child victim coming up again, or is that who you want to be, and and who do you now want to start being to everybody else? Because yes not your fault, but moving forward, now that you know, and you're aware it's, you're going to have to start having some responsibility. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think the distinction that I would make that is really um, true when there's a, a death loss or, you know, you get divorced or you lose your job is that you, you begin to have to move forward well before you're, you're ready. really ready. Yep. You haven't, you know, you have to move forward. And so, and I think this is useful to always go back and, and say this particular piece because there's so much confusion about it. But like trauma is just an event. Yep. Anything could be called trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to say that out loud because you've had clients, I've had clients that are like, well, I didn't know. I mean, it wasn't that bad. Like, I don't know why I still think about this. Like they didn't, it happened way worse to my sister. Yeah. I say it's anything that's not nurturing. It's an event that, but, but somebody can, could be, could be just, I mean, I have, I have an experience of being, of sitting in the car when my mom went into the grocery store where Mm -hmm. I had a full on panic attack. I mean, my mom had left me in the car a million times. Like she wasn't not nurturing me. It was kind of neutral, but it was traumatizing to be so little in a car and have no one to help explain what was going on inside my body that made me feel like I was going to die. So, so the event that happens, it's almost like it could be anything and it maybe isn't that interesting. 
the trauma itself can be super small. Your dad yelled at you, called you stupid, and you've never forgotten it and always felt stupid. What's significant is the meaning and yeah, how it the lands. The narrative you wrote, yep. The meaning that you take from that experience. So when we're doing trauma work, it's the meaning we're stripping out. And often we need to go into the energy that's inside the body in order to have permission to, for them to like stop clutching the meaning. Right. We need to go in and say, what would it be like if your body could be relaxed? Yeah. What would it be like? How would we do that? And because all of these other things end up sort of limiting our experience. But what I think is distinct in grief and loss is your life as you understood it, as your brain understood it, ended the minute that person that you were attached to in that primary way ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And there's all this stuff that happens to your brain, like neuroscience wise, where your brain continues to seek out that person until it can learn that that person is no longer coming, just like a baby. A baby cries for its mother, and then eventually that cry extinguishes if nobody ever comes. Mm -hmm. And we don't have good data on how long that takes, but talk to a griever and they will tell you, I woke up for months forgetting that my husband died. And then just like one morning, I didn't forget anymore and I remembered. So I think in trauma work, often what we're talking about is the trauma that has passed. And we are trying to reconfigure old energy inside a body. What is really distinct when particularly somebody was a trauma survivor in childhood and something terrible happens now is we've got layers. Oh, yeah. And some of it is present day. Yep. Some of it is they are emptying out their husband's closets. And that is, you know, we're trying to prevent that from taking on new and profound, less than terrible meaning in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So no, that's a good point. I think uh, when we think about life, so the anything that's not nurturing, what I mean by that is everything mm -hmm. that's not nurturing is traumatic. It's not that everything that's traumatic is a nurturing issue. Yes. Yeah. There are yes. things that are just being in the world that can be traumatic for you because That's you right. didn't know the narrative. Now I would say, and maybe this is a theological, you know, stance, but I, I would say that, you know, okay, let's take being in the woods with a bear, right? You use the, yep. you know, you're in the dark woods yep. and you're hiking with your family and there's a grizzly bear. It's like, well, I need to be afraid of that bear, I need to have a response because bears eat people. And if I just stand there right. like an idiot, I need to run away. Right. That's right. But it's not, I didn't deserve the bear to eat me, but it's still traumatic. There's no relational component to that. So there are things 100%. that happen just because we live in a fallen, broken world that are, you know, they don't have anything to do with nurturing or, that's you know, exactly. relationships. Um, but what I find that I see that's the most damaging is what I would, I would say is although those events like car crashes, um, uh, war, I, you know, you can't really untie relationships from those that, you yeah. know, something happened most of the time, right? If it's a, maybe if it's a weather event or a, a, a natural disaster or an animal or something like that. But in a lot of the traumas that I see, they're like uh, personal injury. There's always a person attached to it that did the thing. That's right. There was an error. There was a mistake. That's there's right. And I think it's I think it's why particularly childhood sexual abuse is so damaging oh. because the there was there is an attachment 
you know, there's an attachment that's meant to be a trusting, loving attachment. And that's what we're telling people is what we're supposed to be doing in life is attaching and looking for helpers. And, and the, and the wiring that then is laid by that confusing, you know, a minute ago, you said like, you know, the meaning that we make and that children, you know, we don't want them to be unsupported. It, when the trauma happens to you, sometimes you don't have the intellect to do anything other than assume most of the time cause of that, right? <laughs> yeah, childhood and trauma. So anyway. it is, it's a shock to people to be told you were a victim of this person because oh, they're 40 and they're thinking I'm a 40, you know, I weigh 185 and, but, but actually you were eight or six or three. And the reality in our childhood is that we have to bear things that we don't have control over. Mm -hmm. It's different in our adulthood, but it's not always different. And again, with grief and loss, we have to bear the things that we have no control over. People hate that word you used, victim. Yep. But it is really important to hold it because it is the truth. Things happen to us that we cannot control. Yeah, people love to, you know, again, that's why I love these longer form podcasts because it's like you can talk about stuff. Because we have, that's the other problem, right? Is like these little eight second bites and memes and things, even though they're, some of them are very beneficial. A lot of it's like, it, you just get into these, you know, like, well, what are you saying? Or I'm going to take this. Anyway, it's just crazy. But yeah, the victim thing is, is such a polarized political thing now because it's like the victim mind state's bad. It's like, well, the victim mind state's bad if you live in that for the rest of your life. But in, if you want to move out of like trauma, you're going to have to acknowledge that at some point things happen to you you didn't deserve. For some people, the victim mindset is like the rainbow bridge to their healing. Uh -huh. is to be able to spend the time and acknowledge that somebody did something to them that never should have happened, that yeah. they weren't kept safe. For victims. Deeply <laughs> injured, right? I mean, that is the... And I understand that we here in the Western culture want to be in control and we want to, you know, we don't want to feel helpless and we want to feel like we can kick the ass out of option B. And in reality, when people say to me, you know, there's this term kind of in the grief world where you're sort of an intuitive griever, which means that you do more of the emotional side and then you're more um, of an instructive griever, which is more, you know, concrete and you're doing more of the practice and the things. And what I'm what I believe is like, look, we have to be able to be all the things we have to be victims of things sometimes. And maybe also we're aggressors in things yep. sometimes. And maybe also we're, you know, we, we're somebody who is uncomplicit in this victim. You know, we have to be able to look at ourselves at all of those lenses, because if we're going to keep moving down a pathway, which not to get all woo woo about it, but I think there Please. is like a holy energetic connection that we are looking towards of purpose and meaning. And whether you do that through a God practice or you do that through your yoga practice, as much of that ish that we can get out of the way, even if we can just feel that for like one or two minutes, it does shift the compass point and it makes hope possible. Mm -hmm. Hope for better things, hope for more, hope for, and that, you know, for grievers, there's not a lot of hope in the early days. They don't, you know, they're just trying to not drown. And for trauma survivors, often hope is the scariest thing it's the hardest part. They know how to do what they know how to do. And it's painful and they're suffering, but they know how to do this. Hoping for something other 
is the most dangerous and holy act that they can have to be part of the world that, you know, the parts of the world that they are entitled to where they're not a victim. And I, you know, again, I think being clear about what being truthful, being honest about what it is that it is impacting people and what we're asking them to do. And in grief and loss, I think we're asking them to do more than they should. Everybody feels like they are reinventing the wheel when in fact we have a lot of knowledge that comes from the world of trauma, a lot of neuroscience. You know, people come in and they say to me like, I felt crazy, I can't remember anything. And I'm like, no, that's 100% accurate. You are doing this perfectly. That is a standard response. Yep. And then I kind of get mad. Like, where is the megaphone where I can just tell people like, like we know that women who have periods have cramps. <laughs> At some point we didn't talk about that. And then it was like, oh, they just whispered it to each other. And now the whole world knows that cramps are like a normal thing and we can say them out loud and we don't have the fact that we have memory loss and brain fog and we don't sleep and we can't eat or we eat too much or we have real you know, critical moments with our own spirituality, or we don't know who we are anymore in our own identity. That is standard grief response. And people don't know that because we haven't educated them. You're and so, so they oh, man. suffer. You're so, you're so right. I think that was the thread that I found in all of our Ted talks. Yes. Not to go to the Ted, you know, harp on that, but like it was, I found myself going like I'm doing right now. Like I feel the same way about sexual neglect, body safety, 100%. consent. Like I'm like, when are we going to wake up and realize that this is standard development for every single human being? And then, right. and then less than 2% of parents talk to their kids about it. Like that is a insane statistic. It is insane. You know, like, and, and I keep trying to get somebody to disprove it and no one can, cause everybody yeah. who I talked to is like, Oh yeah, my parents didn't talk to me. Like there is no big, huge group of people going, Oh nah, this group of political, this group of religious, this group of ethnic people did it right. It's like, we have Nobody. missed the ship. Um, but my point is, is that it's funny that that, well, it's not funny. It's, it's super sad to me because it just speaks to how disconnected we are as a as Western culture for sure. But just as a human yeah. race, because when we actually are in relationships and we attune and we listen to each other and we hear each other's stories, then these things don't, aren't so complicated you know, well, like, and when we're not educated, we can do damage, right? Like I think oh, about 100%. these companies that I'm working with and, you know, I had a CEO tell me last week, he was like, yeah, no, one of my right-hand men, he just sort of said it like, you know, he's like, yeah, he was the, you know, both of his parents died during COVID and he was the executive of executor of their estate. And he just like, that was as much as he said. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, and what did the company do for him? And he was like, well, you know, he didn't really need that much. And I was like, so I'm going to stop you right there. That's that's not possible, what you just said. Being an executor of an, an estate is like a year-long full-time job that involves so much paperwork. So and, and it doesn't matter how well planned. I mean, banks, you know, take everything takes 90 days. Mm -hmm. So and he was like, yeah, you know, actually, when I did my dad stuff, it was pretty awful. And I was like, yeah, it was pretty awful. And so then we had this, like one of those awkward moments where he was like, God, why didn't we do anything to help him? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, also he didn't feel like he could talk about it here. Yep. So like, because you already we, communicated, you know, other, already communicated through not talking like about to it. Say, yeah. 
Right. Well, imagine a company that says, hey, for all those people who might one day become executors of your parents' estate, we've contracted with this small agency that helps with that. So just know that that's there. Mm-hmm. The same way that when people are trying to apply for colleges, some companies help with executors. Well, you know what? We have some parental college counseling so that you can understand this process. Or when we're moving you from your LA location to your Boston location, we're going to help you find a babysitter for your kids and a good, you know, your kid is a gymnast. We're going to scope out the local gym so that they can figure out which gym to, I haven't, I've yet to talk to a company that has considered that the families that they're hiring, that they are looking at their small children and saying, those kids are going to need some resources in 15 years are going to become the same people are going to become the people who have elderly parents and they need some support figuring out what to do. Not just when those people die, but also as through their aging. Mm-hmm. Nobody has done that. And it's because we love little kids. Oh my gosh, we love school age kids. Oh, tell us about their Halloween costume. We do not love the end of life. That's right. And so we don't say, tell me about your dad. Tell me about his Parkinson's. How long does he have to live? What resources do you have in place? Are they going to be able to carry you through the end of time? Yeah. Or will he need to be? We don't do that. We don't do it as a culture. And it actually does do damage. Like I wanted to call this guy. The the CEO didn't give me permission, but I was like, can I call him? Can I ask him? Can I ask what hurt about that or how it was hard? Or, you know, let's just ask him. Let's ask how it could have been better if he had, you know, executor time off. Yeah, I, I feel like one of the things that I, I, I call, you know, would say I, I'm the king of caveats, you know, and what I try to teach people as being, you know, I, I like to call it trauma responsive. Um, yeah, Ooh, I like that. Because I, I think as we've moved into trauma informed care, um, a lot of people have information, but they don't do anything with it. And so it's like, I like it. I like trauma responsive care because it's like, now I can, I can act, I can do, I can, I can be a part of the process. And so, um, we started trauma responsive jujitsu recently and we're certifying gyms and like how to, how to talk to your members and how to help them understand, like if they have PTSD or they're a victim of sexual violence or they're, you know, they have autism or Asperger's or, or they're a police officer, whatever that they they're bringing into this, this world all of those things and so just by saying right the caveat of hey guys if you're a cop and you're training and you're getting held down and you feel like you really lose your mind or get angry you might be getting dysregulated come talk to me about it or we have some therapists that we can send you to to work on that because that's not your fault but every cop that comes in here is going to experience that just those two sentences can change someone's life if you can say hey guys uh, I know we're doing a bullying seminar on self-defense, but bullying is real. And here's a few of the symptoms you might experience, you know, in your mental health. Um, if you've been bullied, people go, wait a second. I didn't think I've been bullied, but I, I think all those things, right? It's like that changes. It's because people don't even know that they've been a victim or don't even know they've been bullied or don't even know they have PTSD. And so it doesn't do enough to say, here, here's what PTSD, you know, here's what PTSD You're is. You're 100% right about this, that that is something that that I talk in companies. I talk about this a lot because they're like, no, you know, my sec, my right hand man, George, he would tell me anything. I'm like, George doesn't know. There it is. He's experiencing grief symptoms. We need to become uh, more emotionally fluent. And you actually could do this in your space because you train on all kinds of other stuff, including everybody's in the, into mindfulness, like just add a little add on, 
But when I'm what I what I love about what you just said is you're making room, even just in the conversation for people to think about, ooh, would this apply to me? Meaning it's just a normal part of society that people experience these things. My friend Christy Tate, who's a writer, she put up on her Instagram the other day, and I was like, I, I sent her a message and was like, I need to know more about this. She was at a library in Chicago. And there was a sign, she was going to get a book, maybe one of her books, um, from like the self-help section. And there was a sign in the self-help section that said, we have lots of books that can help you. But if you need more help than these books can offer you, please come to the front desk and let us give you some numbers of places that offer that kind of in-person support. That's I mean, it awesome. like made me cry. Yeah. Because when we're asking people, what can you do? Ugh. People say to you, it's not a library's job, but look what that library just took on. Look what it took on. And my husband, when he was he was helping somebody look for a job and this company, I ended up calling the CEO of the company. It was a, you know, it was like a headhunter. And the headhunter was like, listen, lots of people are looking for jobs because they're trying to raise the corporate ladder. A lot of other people are looking for jobs because bad crap has gone down. And if you're one of those people, here's a book we like. And it was a really good book they recommended. And I was like, see, that's not just providing a resource. That's actually changing the conversation and the culture yep. right there. Yep. That's Offering it. that out loud. And so that's what I ask people. I say, listen, if you have me come in and I talk to your company and I just, all I do is say, these things are typical for people who are grieving. First of all, what I can tell you is five people are going to be waiting for me in the hall because they want to talk to me about personal experiences with people that they love. A thousand percent. Right. So there don't worry, you're going to get your money's worth. But also what you have just said to everybody that is here and knows that you're having a grief and loss conversation is that you expect that that part of their human experience will come with them to work. Mm -hmm. because of course it will. Yeah, we uh, went to Istanbul uh, before COVID. So 2019, maybe. Um, and we were in, uh, you know, a fish market eating and I was meeting with the international mission board, um, which is kind of the, one of the largest sending organizations in, mm. in, in the, in the world for international missions. And so I'm meet with this guy and uh, it's me and him and a couple other people. And, uh, we were there to serve some missionaries and love on them and support them. And, um, and it was a counselor from, from Turkey. And so we were talking about, uh, what was happening with the missionaries over there. And, and there's, you know, I can't even tell you how many, but the point is, is that um, we were talking about mental health and it was what happens when people get anxiety or they get caught looking at pornography or they get caught with an addiction or they have an affair. You know, all these missionaries are over here in a first, you know, in a third world country, right. not with any right. training, right. Right. no community, speaking a different language, families right. come with them, all the same issues we have times a hundred and then you throw them in this situation. And I'm like, I was just explaining, and hopefully this continues to be a conversation, but I'm like, you should assume they're going to get anxiety. That's right. You should assume that they're going to have depression. Natural response the story so should many. be when you yeah. get these things, because we right. told you before you went you would, here's what you That's can right. do, and we're totally cool with it. Not, oh, now you have anxiety, so maybe you're not fit for duty. Let's go home and take a break and deal with that and come back. Right. But we do that in... I mean, it feels like almost every yeah, we do. section of society. And it's like, man, yeah, all do. that does is teach people that there's something wrong with them, you know, yeah. that, and not, yes, maybe something's off and it's not as healthy as it should be, but it's not always a uniquely 
broken failure of you. It's living in a seriously messed up, broken world. Right, because we throw that word gaslighting around too much. Uh. But it is, right? It is a little bit like, oh, well, no, you should just go over to Turkey and be a missionary and just adjust. And why would you need any extra services? And why, you know, people go over, everybody's fine. You just like adjust and you eat the food. One of the things that I think that it just staggers me, it just st- it like blows my mind that the pandemic, we saw what the pandemic was. And we understood what the impact was going to be to our society. And nobody, no mechanism was like, wow, we better train up these therapists real fast. Yeah. And we, we were better- all still working. Right. But I just mean people who like little baby therapists that are coming in. Like we could have made, you could have come for free. You don't have to pay for school. Just come into school and we will train you. Mm-hmm. There are organ there are ways that we could have without even I mean, therapists when they come out of school, they don't make any money anyway. No. It wouldn't cost that much to to create the support narrative and army. They you know, it's it is what it is right now. All the teenagers that have OCD, all the increased suicidality across the board. You know, those things are not going to get better immediately because those are the symptoms that are now coming out. And, And you know this, I know this. We don't have in the in the terror and the crisis, the emotional experience. We have it after that emotional after the terror and the crisis has passed. And so what we're seeing is people who are like, oh, my God, I need a therapist. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you that most of my colleagues have cut back their hours are very specific about wanting to see kids who are having a hard time adjusting to college and nothing else. They don't want a hard case, whatever that is supposed to mean, because the, the degree to which they were holding over and over and over the same kind of energetic story. Right. I mean, I like my caseload to look like some people who are maybe going to get a divorce, a teenager who's struggling with some, you know, concepts of self, Maybe I'm working with somebody who has old childhood trauma and they want to do some EMDR. I like it to be a buffet. The past three years, it's been it's been everybody is feeling hopeless. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I had this experience with somebody that she used. She calls me for all kinds of things, usually in a crisis. And uh, and she called me during covid and was like asking me all these things. And I said, she's like, it's interesting for the first time in my life. I'm calling you and you're going through the exact same thing at the exact same time that I am. So I had jack answers for, her. you know, I'm That's like, right. usually I can be like, well, with a client I've experienced this or clinically I've seen this happen, or this is probably what's going to happen. And you know, this is how I've experienced it, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm like on the phone with her, I'm like, I have no clue, yeah. you know, like I can have hope that these things are going to happen, but I don't know if this is going to end tomorrow or next week. I don't know if this is going to be 10 years. I don't know if it's going to keep getting worse. Like it was insane to be trying to help people, you know, to yeah, and maybe not good for us. Right. Like maybe oh, you know, man. like, right. Like maybe if we're in a clinical supervision group and you're like, Oh, I have a client whose dad just died and your dad died recently. We would be like, let's put that with, let's put that with somebody else. But, but the, we don't have those choices and that option. And what I can tell you for myself is, most of what I'm doing right now is not one-on-one individual sessions. I have a few people, those people that I'm doing one-on-one chess sessions with, they're all women and they are all people who are looking to elevate their 
work from and and their themselves from one place to another so it's not particularly trauma centered mm -hmm. um and i'm writing books which is i you know it's much more me privately quietly in my office and i'm talking to editors about the importance of the work but i am not doing what we just did which is lighting myself up with energy from the inside all day long because yep. i actually don't think i can tolerate it i think that is with with all my boundaries in place is requiring more empathy than is good for me yep yeah i found that you know last year probably beginning of last year i I, well, I did after, you know, four years ago, I started seeing less and, and getting more of a variety. And then last year I stopped taking clients because of the writing and the Ted talk and the podcast and the, you know, the trying to reach more people. I get so much energy in doing this and, and talking to you and, and knowing that people are going to hear it and they're going to hear a conversation that they're not going to hear hardly anywhere else. You know, they're going to have to search or even get direction and, and, um, and so I love doing this, but it's not draining to me. I could do this all day. Same. Um, like same, same. so good, even though it's energizing and all those things, I could do it all day. Um, and then the writing the book and that stuff's been great. Um, but now, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I continue to try to work and not take new clients and do this stuff. So, because it's not, it's not the same capacity that I used to have. And, and that's part of breaking through, you know, you break through that wall and, it's uh, you got to keep being healthy so you can take care of the people you are taking care of really well. Yeah, and what, ki what kills me are the, you know, I love all my clients. I've been lucky enough to work with people to always be able to choose who I work with. And I part of what they get when they walk through the door is that I love them and I'm rooting for them. And what was really, really hard during the pandemic was, you know, every person I have ever seen called and wanted back. On oh, my I calendar. know. Telling people knows the worst, especially just, old you know, clients. And people who were, who, you know, their symptoms were returning and to turn them over to somebody new who maybe didn't know. I mean, I, I couldn't even, I, I didn't even have time to do consultations necessarily. I certainly couldn't do a write-up for the person. So that was also pretty brutal is that, you know, I like to have a certain level of quality of care and just the sheer numbers. I mean, I, every once in a while I would come back around and my assistant would have sent someone who was like a you know, a client for a decade, probably five years ago, like kind of a form letter, you know, unfortunately, Megan is no longer saying, you know, can't see, but, and I, I'm like, okay, well, it already went out. I'm sure that hurt them and it was terrible, but yeah. So it's just been a really tricky time. And, you know, I'm really hoping that the little baby therapists that are coming out with all the energy and perky and ready to help are getting financially supported and are getting access to do all the hard trainings and are going to do all the hard trainings so that they can, they can carry the day. Yeah. Um, they're definitely the hope because, um, I say, I've been saying this a lot, speaking of teens and young adults, I'm like, I need you guys to get it together and come up with like, how to help each other because it is interesting, you know, being a, uh, you know, analog to digital convert and not being in the digital world. I think there's so many things that we're trying to do and talk about and, and that we're missing because we just didn't live in it. We don't even understand what the consequences are for the, totally. the social dilemma that we're in. And so I'm interested. I think I'm scared because I'm like, Oh, there's so many blind spots in that group that I hope that they pick it up. But I also have hope because I'm like, they'll be the ones who do. It's not going to be us. We're not going to be able to figure it. Like we can help right now. And I'm not saying we're out, you know, put us out to pasture, but I'm saying 
the hope for the future it, are those kids, are the therapists who put their phones down, you know, put down pornography, put down, totally. you know, deal with their trauma, don't normalize all this stuff, and then stop listening to the nonsense that's out there in the in the pendulum of, yeah, everything's gaslighting, everything's a trigger, everything, it's like, okay, lots of things are, and we need to validate those things, but we also can't use those things as a weapon to not take responsibility for our own stuff. And I feel like yeah, the gap is that age group. Like they're going to figure out, hopefully they're going to figure out how to tie that in and teach us and, you know, and do some podcasts on it, but they gotta, they gotta heal first, you know, and that's the sad part. Well, and what they're going to do is they're going to put their bricks underneath their feet and they're going to have to heal and move forward all at the same time, which we know is the hardest kind of work, but you know, when you don't have choices, those are, those are the things that you get to do. But I will say just to sort of wrap us up on a hopeful note, you know, part of the reason I'm doing so much work with companies right now, now, of course, this is a self-selected group of people who hear me somewhere, learn about my work and then call. Yep. So they must want to learn more about, you know, grief informed work in general. But these are people who are, they, they want to make changes. They want to know things. This isn't just so they can tick a box. They believe that there is more support that's needed. And they're, for the most part, these are people who have already innovated. They've already broken through the marketplace in some way and offered something that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. So they get the concept of like, oh, well, it may not be us, but we're trying to set up a corporation culture that allows for the people that are coming out of your college now to show us really how to lay the groundwork so that business can be different. Cause it can't, it can't, I mean, the number of people that are like, I absolutely will not come back to work nine to five, seven days a week. And, and you can't make me really is shifting the culture in ways that are making, making executives and companies feel crazy and also furious. But once they're crazy and they're furious drops down, they got to figure out their problem. Yeah. And it's a, it's an interesting dynamic because I think it, it's the pendulum with everything else. It's, yes, you know, um, we have neglected people for so long that now they're, they're rioting, you know, there, there's a revolution. And with that revolution, there's a bunch of stuff that gets torn up and things that get torn down. And that's very frustrating at the same time. I hope that what is birthed out of it uh, is a is a culture I, I can only have hope is a culture that is more mindful about mental health is more balanced in its way of doing things whether it's uh you know mothers and fathers taking leave or breastfeeding at work or time off when you lose a parent or therapy you know you know offered by the company or you know uh, breaks during the day um you know where you work an hour and a half and then you get a 30 minute break and some of the things we're seeing in that research and you know we look at a Western culture, especially, and I have some friends from Venezuela and missionaries again, they're like, we don't deal with any of this stuff. Like we're CS in for like two hours. And, and so we don't need a therapist because we talked to each other for two hours at lunch and we got all that out and we went back to work for a couple hours and we went home and they're like, they kind of laugh that's at the, that's the, that's the solution. We're all going to move to Venezuela. That's right. No, we just have to keep fighting the culture and, and doing the best we can to speak in the truth, to be who we are, you know, well, look, I, I don't want to take any more of your time. This was great. Um, this was so great. I could talk to you all day. I know. We this could keep so going. Helpful. That's part of the Thank problem. Thank you so much. This Absolutely. Just great. Thank you. I, I will stay connected and maybe do some more 
conversations and talk. Yeah, I would love to. We'll we'll reschedule you in another six months, and then we can just text back and forth and talk in in between. It's been really fun doing the podcast because people like you who I'm really, you know, enjoy having on, like end up being people who, you know, send me stuff. And I, text love, back I and love forth. that. The podcast podcasting is amazing for that. Cause you create these real, like possibly intimate friendships in a short span of time. And, and technology means you can keep up those connections and, you know, it's yeah. just so great. Well, love if you that. have anybody who you'd love to come on here or for me to go on to talk about my stuff, like same thing, just, you know, let's encourage each other. And, and I think love it. rising tide raises all ships. So a hundred percent. I feel the exact same. That was, that's so good. Thank well, you so much. Absolutely. Can you tell people uh, your books and then kind of your, yeah. where they can find your stuff? So the end of the hour is my memoir and that is coming out December of this year. I don't have a pub date yet, but that's with Zibby Books. I have another book, which is called Essential Conversations About Grief and Loss, which is with Sounds True. And that comes out in 2024. I don't exactly know what month yet. Um, you can find me on Instagram. That's where I'm the most active. And it's Megan Reardon Jarvis. It's R-I-O-R-D-A-N. But the easiest way to do it is to just go through Grief is My Side Hustle. So put that into Google, Grief is My Side Hustle, and it'll show you my website and my Instagrams and all that stuff. Um, and I'm pretty responsive. I have a good team. So if people have questions, go ahead and DM me. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll respond. If we can get you the resources, we will try. So send me a message, link up, um, and, and grief is my side hustle. The podcast you can find on Spotify, all the, all those things. And though that podcast really is sort of exclusively talking to folks about resources and experiences with the trauma of of death loss. Yeah. Um, I would love to come on there and talk about, um, my brother-in-law died of brain cancer when he was 26, about 10 years ago. So we can talk about that offline, but I'd love to kind of talk about that from that the same way you did for me, like just as a clinician, what it was like to go through some of that. And, you know, anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Um, God bless you and have a good day.